0: Hi, welcome to Parenting the Edlerian Way. I'm your host, Edlerian Family Counselor and Parenting Expert Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Edlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child.
2: Hi, it's Allison.
0: Welcome back to the podcast. Gosh, it feels like a while since I've done a Q and A. So thank you for your questions again. And, um, thank you for your patience in getting to your answers. I really appreciate when people share. Not only does it help the person who's sent in the questions, but I know from many of the comments and feedback that I've gotten from other people that listen to the podcast that they really appreciate learning from other people's situations, whether it's one they have themselves personally as well or whether it is something that might be coming down the pipeline that makes them be more prepared, or whether it's just seeing the application of Adlerian principles in parenting, seeing theory come to life. So thank you again. That's a generosity that you give back to the community when you send questions. So please keep them coming. So I'll get started with the ones that I have for me today. Uh, this one says, Hi, Allison. I hope you're able to answer my question on your next Q&A podcast. Well, indeed, I am. I've just listened to your most recent one, and there was a question regarding the two-year-old who had been waking during the night, and it hit very close to home for our current situation. We have two daughters, a four-year-old and a 20-month-old. Our 20-month-old is very clingy and demanding child and still continues to wake during the night. I feel, as most parents do, overwhelmed and lost with the amount of conflicting opinions and advice when it comes to children's sleep. I've heard from numerous sources that self-settling comes with age and cannot be taught, and that leaving a child to cry at night without offering them comfort is detrimental to their emotional development and causes long-term damage. Hence, my husband or I will always get up to our 20-month-old during the night and lay with her until she falls back to sleep. In reference to your response in the last Q&A podcast, I definitely play the am I damaging my child record over and over in my mind if I leave her to cry. Our daughter's currently sharing a room as we are renting, and there's not enough rooms for them to have a bedroom each, which adds another layer of complexity to how we tackle the night wakings as we don't want to disturb our four-year-old, or certainly as little as possible. I love your podcast. I absolutely swear by the Illyrian way of parenting, so I would love to hear your insights into what age children have the ability to self-settle. Any advice you have would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. Okay, so I'm going to try to answer this again through that Adlerian lens for you and some of the concepts and what it might look like with sleep training. Adlerians are sensitive to developmental abilities, that um, it is discouraging to a child to give them a task so great that it's outside of their developmental window. So we do absolutely pay attention to those milestones. But the problem is there is a really wide range um, And those are impacted by so many things that we have to kind of leave it to the intuition of the parent. And generally speaking, our society, we tend to underestimate our kids' capabilities. And you kind of have to find that necessary edge between my child is uh, right on the cusp of where if we did some training and we pushed a little bit harder that they could develop those competencies for themselves. And we tend to see the struggles and then kind of back down. So I would say Adlerians uh, in general have a a big belief that children are far more robust and that these challenges, physical or psychological, are part of building resiliency and that they aren't to be um, so worried about and that. We hear a lot of misunderstanding of the fragility of children uh, from the misunderstanding of, of some of how the attachment theory research came to be and its application to to modern day life, and so, so I'll I'll, I'll go back to that in just a second. So if we're going to look at it from a developmental point of view to give you some framework, the infant. Uh, has to go from basically sleeping almost constantly if you think about it, in utero the baby you know kicks a little bit here and there and then when they're they're born they sleep most of the day except for to wake and nurse and then they're pretty much back to sleep again but if you track that over the first six months one year two year you start to see that they're able to be more awake more alert and that their sleep becomes consolidated so that by the time you are adults we're a we're we're awake in the day and then we sleep at night in two solid blocks but little infants have to kind of build and and cluster towards that so you'll see it about 1 year they kind of give up that morning nap they're just down to the afternoon nap um around you know 2 or so we start seeing that a big afternoon nap where they're sleeping for 3 or 4 hours um and then they abandon their nap which means they need an earlier bedtime but they're consolidating these little fractured bits of sleep into these longer bits of sleep and we're aiming for this idea of getting the child synchronized with how We live, which is we're up with the sunshine, we sleep in the dark. Now, that's very different if you're a shift worker, but that's kind of how our world operates. So from an Illyrian point of view, we, our job as parents is to socialize the child so that they can operate successfully and cooperate with the social demands and the social norms of the society in which they're going to join so i guess if you were like a night hunting tribe you would do the opposite but um in our general world that's what we're trying to aim to build this cooperative child to follow the social norms get their biological needs for sleep so children need more sleep than parents younger siblings need more sleep than older siblings so each one we meet the needs of the situation it's a great example of not making things equal the baby does not need the same amount of sleep as the four-year-old and um, you know, or vice versa. And the four-year-old needs a different amount of sleep than the parents. So they can't cry, it's not fair, why do I have to go to bed now? We always meet the needs of the situation. So we're trying to socialize the child. In socializing the child, then we have to look at another Adlerian principle, um, which is this idea then that the child adapts, to the patterns and functioning of the family rather than the family acquiescing. And um, this is why we use the word pampering. We don't want to change the social order of the family in line with the demands of the child. We want the child to learn to socialize into the established routines and norms of family life. So that's what we're trying to do as parents. The whole thing is still around cooperation. And and this is where, when it comes to sleep training, I work with the parents to say, um, I never want to put you out of your personal comfort zone. If if you feel like your child's being damaged and you need to run to them, then you should go run to them. Um, I, I, in an earlier podcast, I may have told you the story, um, and I'll repeat it here for people that haven't listened to all of them. But I was talking to a gentleman who said they had a new baby and they were playing cards at a friend's house and they brought the baby and put them in a little uh, travel playpen and while they were playing cards, this other couple had older children, and they were kind of mocking the people that had the, the young child because they were new parents, and they really felt that they were, you know, being all frazzled by the child crying in the other room. And they kept saying, oh, you new parents, just leave them be, and, and so out of embarrassment, they didn't go to their child who was crying. Finally, they couldn't take it anymore and they said, no, we got to go, even if it were embarrassing ourselves in front of our expert parent friends that have been through this part of the journey. And when they went in, the child's head was wedged between the bar and the mattress, and this kid was literally in distress. Um, so I, I do believe in, you know, if, if you're a parent and you have to listen to your spidey senses and you have to do what's right by your own emotional barometer. But I wanna give you fortitude to say that the methodology by which we train our kids to sleep is impacted by how we respond to them. And that's where that necessary tension is. So I sort of say with sleep training, you're not gonna be successful until you're really ready to sleep train. Meaning you'll get to the point where a parent will say, I've had it. I haven't slept in three years. This kid's in my bed, you know, he's just pulling my chain. I've, I'm done. And I'm like, oh, sounds like you're really motivated to to, to get to sleep training. Um, so, so usually there's something in your mind where you kind of feel like, oh, come on, they really could do this by now. Uh, we just tend to delay that later. We err on the side of, you know, of caution because we don't want to have that thought that if I didn't go to my crying child, I'd somehow be doing damage. Um, so... So you'll you'll know yourself when you have the internal fortitude. I would just support you to say it happens a lot earlier than you would think. So that's one piece. The second part is around cooperation. There's lots of cultures where everybody sleeps together. And you can go online and see family beds where it's just wall-to-wall mattresses. And so long as everybody's getting a good night's sleep, Adlerians say, let's cooperate and let's meet the needs of the situation. So you can create your own family social norm so long as everybody's getting a good night's sleep. Everyone agrees with the sleeping arrangements and nobody's feeling put out or put upon. And um, now if both partners that are co-parenting feel okay with that, then there you go. What I tend to find when I work with families is that they're doing more the, you know, I start by lying down with them and then I go back to this bed and then my other kid goes to where her father is. And it's this constant jumping around all night And nobody's getting a good night's sleep. And the parents have not been back in their coupleship bed. So they start missing out on intimacy. And that's not okay. You know, I've had solutions where it's like if the child wakes in the night, they can come into their parents' room, but not their bed. Let You know, let them put a little mattress on the floor that they can pull out so that you get a good night's sleep. And they get themselves resettled. You could do something like that. So I think you can be creative with all of this. If you do needs of the situation, are they being cooperative? Are we acquiescing to their demands or are we putting a little rubber on the road so that they are growing and developing and realizing I live in a society that isn't up at night? There's no social gains to be had. So let me just say a little bit more about the process. We all go through sleep cycles. We all go through the veil of being you know, asleep and in a non-conscious state to kind of waking and we cross the veil of awakeness. But most of us don't even realize that we roll over and we go back to sleep and we have no memory that we woke. But because infants used to wake and then cry to get nursed, they still have a benefit in waking in the night. It started with being fed, but that translates into, you know, having someone cuddle me, having my back rubbed, having someone come join me in the bed, you know, and it feels nice. And so why wouldn't you? So what we want to do is we want to try to have the child realize social time is in the daylight hours and sleep time it's boring. There's no one around. There's nothing to do but sleep. And they don't learn that from a lecture. They learn that experientially. So when I think about it, if I think about this child, this young child who's trying to piece together what is life? What's my place in it? How do I belong and fit in? How do I um, uh, make my way and understand the world that I've been born into? I would rather have an experience where a child is you know sitting in a in a bed or a crib and they cry and, and nobody comes and they go to sleep and when they cry and the light is bright outside their window a really happy shining face comes in and says good morning good, good morning good morning I love you so much let's get up and start our day and pretty soon they're going to realize oh I get it those happy people come in the daylight hours they don't come in the dark hours. And they learn to roll over and settle themselves. You don't figure out self-soothing until you've got to self-soothe. So it's an experiential piece. And it's really up to you to kind of decide where that's going to happen. Now, there's research, if you're interested in looking at some of the, the science. Um, but it, those demanding children, you said he's kind of a clingy, demanding child. Believe it or not, they seem to do better with the cold turkey. Because if you're sitting at the door and then you're sitting on you know outside their room, They kind of think to themselves, well, you're there. Why aren't you know, if you're there, why not be with me right here with me? And so they kind of protest louder. Whereas if they just have one day where they go, well, you know, I protested and I couldn't change the environment. So I guess I'm going to abandon that approach. The fact that, you know, when we're looking at are we going to damage our kids? A lot of these attachment studies and what they were looking at was kids that were, you know, uh, removed from their parents during the war and, and and put in. Uh, places that couldn't attend to them, and that's very different than asking a child to sleep through the night. And then all day we put them, in, we take them to the park, and we take them to daycare, and we play with their numbers, and they do finger painting. It's like I am quite sure you've got a million ways that when it's daylight hours and we socialize, that you show that attachment, and they put it together. When it's dark, that's not available. It doesn't mean I'm unloved or I'm I'm unsafe. Um, you know, you do kiss their boo boos in the night or in the sorry. um, You do kiss their boo-boos when they fall down. There's all kinds of evidence that you're, you're caring for them. So that's sort of the Adlerian piece on that. Uh, Like I said, I'm not going to push you to go any faster than you want. And if you find another way of meeting the needs of the situation and be doing it cooperatively with your bed arrangements and setups and all those things, then go for it. You're working the principles. Um, and I think that's, that is just fine. And in the grander scheme of all your parenting, this will be one little uh blip um you don't hear a lot of people with their kids in you know 18 19 where we're still talking about the uh, uh the challenges of of night training it's it's not to diminish what you're in right now um but what i mean is with perspective and in the rear view mirror your child is going to have so many experiences of a joyful happy wonderful Illyrian family life have calm comfort that you found the right philosophy and there's so much good to be derived from working these principles, even if this one feels like a bit of a a challenge at the moment. So, I I hope that's supportive. Good luck. Let us know how it goes.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care.
0: Hello, my daughter is almost 13, and I don't want to raise a child who is too sheltered. I want her to experience life and have some independence, but not sure how to foster her independence in a safe and effective way. Any tips would be very greatly appreciated. Signed, a devoted follower. Well, thank you for following, and I appreciate the question. You know, so again, because we're trying to keep this an Adlerian podcast, I want to use the terms that people can recognize and see their application. So in Adlerian psychology... Um, to your, to your very great point, our job as parents is to raise kids from being 100% dependent on us in infancy to being independent as they grow their skills to be able to manage life. But then the third stage is that interdependence because all of life is about living with our fellow person. And, um, all of those things happen in the context of our family life. And so. Uh, You have lots of opportunities at home to start to instill this idea of being competent, independent, and being able to have autonomy and manage your life within the safe structure of the family. So we say take time for training because kids aren't born knowing how to do things. Take time for training. It's it's slow. It's laborious. And then never do for a child what a child can do for themselves. So that might start off as, you know, at 13. Well, what can a 13-year-old do? couple of resources and ideas for you. One, you can download on my website. I have uh, worked with Marian Bala from the Ottawa um, Adlerian Centre. She's created a great resource on what kids can do by age just because it's got that developmental piece of what's appropriate and gives some ideas of some responsibilities and skills that they could be doing. So you could check that out. But the other way you could do it is find a family that also has a 13-year-old, same age as your daughter, But find the family where the 13-year-old is the youngest, because you know how it is. Older kids kind of break the path for their younger siblings, and we tend to have more independence and competence and expect more of younger children, um, so they mature faster. And that'll give you a good barometer, like, well, what's that 13-year-old doing? Are they packing their own lunch? Are they doing their own laundry? What what are they doing? Um, So that can be helpful, too. So the... Think about what what she might do if you could spend time training her. I really like uh, doing laundry is a very great example. Uh, again, they can get excited about wanting to learn these things. And I find the sooner and the more you put on younger aged kids, the more they feel that you really trust them. So I certainly had my kids doing laundry before 13. My kids were helping with laundry at five and six and seven. And they really wanted to do their own laundry because it was a sign of growing up. Um... It was a a sign of, I can manage. You're trusting me with a a big piece of heavy equipment. So I was always trying to get on early, look for readiness, look for where they they could manage, and then, yes, spend the time. You have to sort the whites from the darks, and here's how the dials work, and here's how you put a timer on so you don't leave it all wet and getting moldy in the washing machine. Um, So all those things are educational. A lot of times what we end up doing is we put expectations on our kids that they somehow should be born knowing things. And so when they you ask your 13-year-old, you know, hey, we've got company coming over, go clean the bathroom. And then we come in and we criticize and we say, you didn't even clean the mirror. You didn't even empty the waste paper basket. What do you think cleaning a bathroom is? So we often criticize and correct and nobody, nobody enjoys learning that way. So instead, flip it around and think of it more like teaching them how to sew or go or you know, go fishing where you get excited saying this is how we measure the butter for making muffins and this is how we thread a needle. And see it as mentorship and bonding and, and you know, something that's fun if you bring a positive attitude to it. But the trick is once you have taught them and they've had time to practice and you've been there being a bit of a cheerleader saying there you go, try it again, you'll get it. And you see them developing these competencies in a positive way. You can, when you see that they can do it, you—it's you, so great to be able to say, "Look at that! I, you know, laundry is now yours to look after. I don't have to do that again. You can do your own laundry." And the trick then is when they forget to do their laundry and they need their school uniform or they need their gym clothes or something, you can't step in and rescue, because part of training for independence is making mistakes. It's like, oh, that was your responsibility and you didn't plan ahead. That's a time management skill. That's still something you're working on. Uh, you know, I'm I'm so sorry. You'll figure it out. And they'll wear dirty clothes for a day, or they'll febreeze them, or steam that they'll figure something out. They'll call a friend and say, can I borrow a, a a shirt? Um, but they'll learn from that. So you have to be really, you have to see that mistakes are just as much to be embraced as opportunities to really ground that learning. It's when we get worried about mistakes that we often foul up or when we're intermittent in handing over the responsibility. If sometimes you do it and sometimes you don't and sometimes you call them on it and sometimes you don't, that really makes for problems. Um, I think the uh, the other thing is um, really giving them independence so that you're not a backup. It's so easy now with phones for kids to just call and ask and they're quite shortly tethered to us for information. So I think anytime you can do something where they really can't rely on you, even if it means relying on another adult, so send them on as many school field trips as you can, send them to camp if you can, uh, send them on, you know, a flight where they have to go with a flight attendant to go to grandma's or an aunt's house and have them stay at a family member's that's somewhere far away, um, spending time at other people's houses, um, anytime where they really can be away. Uh, jobs where they can little part-time jobs where they have responsibility could be dog walking babysitting all that kind of stuff i I think all of those are are just really great opportunities so we want to parent not from our fears of all the things that could go wrong but parent from that idea of my kid is um, going to learn all the things that she needs or at least the mindset that says i don't know what life's going to throw me my way but one thing i know about me I know how to figure it out. I know how to get myself out of a sticky situation. I can rely on me. That belief is huge. It's a huge protective belief in, in resiliency, self-esteem. Um, and uh, and so anytime that you can have a situation that, you know, they have to kind of flounder through and then they get to good problem-solving resolution, that's uh, that's a win for concretizing that belief. And because it does require problem-solving, Where do we practice problem solving skills in Adlerian psychology? That's why we have or one of the many benefits of having family meetings. It's a place to come together, create democracy, mutual respect, team building, team family bonding and practice problem solving together. Uh, So definitely get those going as well. That'll help as well. So there you go. That's the end of my uh, advice for today. I hope it was helpful. Keep sending in those questions. And again, thank you everyone for making this podcast helpful to your community. Appreciate it. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit.